following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Ezra chapter 8 today. We'll uh, continue our series we've been doing through the book of Ezra, and I think this is sermon number 8, and uh, we've got uh, three chapters left, including today. Uh, of this, uh, this study. Before we uh, get to uh, actually reading the, the passage, uh, you know, I, I think we would probably all agree uh, that there are few things in life more satisfying than reaping the benefits uh, of a lot of hard work or seeing it come to fruition. And so I remember, uh, for example, working my way through seminary, and uh, my years in seminary were long, exhausting hours because I wasn't just doing school, I was working full time in, in ministry and there were a lot of really short nights and a lot of really long days. And so, man, I remember when I got to turn in my, my thesis and it got approved and, and then I got my diploma, that was a, a wonderful day. Uh, to, actually, I, actually, I actually crutched across the platform because I had just blown out my knees. So I'll never forget that day, but, but it was such a satisfying uh, time. And, and as well, I think about just some of the big events we do as a church. You think of something like Vacation Bible School, and um, there's a lot of work that goes into a week like that, a lot of planning and, and preparation, and, and it's just so satisfying to see kids come into the church and have a good time, hear the gospel, make all those connections, and, and to just see the fruits of, of all the labor that goes into uh, a, a week like that. And I imagine that, that Ezra felt a similar satisfaction as he walked through the events that are described for us in Ezra 7 and 8. And so, uh, last Sunday, we saw that, that Ezra was burdened by the condition of his people. Now remember that, that he lived in a time where Israel was scattered throughout the Persian Empire. They were not the, the great nation that God had called them to be. And it wasn't just that they were scattered, the people that were back in Judea from the first return, they had grown spiritually cold. They were not living for the Lord as quite like they needed to. And so Ezra, he was burdened to make a difference. He was burdened to make an impact. And so we talked last week about the fact that he spent years studying God's law, learning how to live God's law, and then preparing to teach it to other people. And then finally, one day, he got his chance to appear before King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in the world at that time, and he requested permission to lead a second return of Jews back to Jerusalem. And incredibly, we saw in chapter 7, verse 6, that the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And then uh, notice how chapter 7 ends in, in verses 27 and 28. Now, Ezra sees God do these incredible things, and he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. And so Ezra rejoiced. And it had to be so satisfying after, after years of preparing for this moment to see God answer his prayers and to see the king give him this incredible permission. But of course, 
Getting the king on board was just the first of a lot of, of obstacles to Ezra fulfilling his vision. He still has a long ways to go. And as we've said a number of times, everything in the book of Ezra is hard. And nothing comes easy. And there's going to be some challenging days ahead for Ezra. But we're going to see today that Ezra persevered by faith, and God was faithful again and again and again. But, and we need that encouragement as well. That, that because, because we also at times, we get overwhelmed by, by God's will, it's too hard, or at times we doubt the faithfulness of God to us, and sometimes we're, we're tempted to quit. Sometimes we're tempted to compromise God's will and, and to do things our own way. And so all of us, we, we need frequent reminders that God is faithful and God is abundantly gracious. So, so I hope today that we'll be encouraged as, as we see God's provision in chapter 8 and that we will be encouraged to, to walk by faith, believing that God faithfully and He abundantly provides for those who trust in Him. So, so, so God provides for Ezra in chapter 8 in some pretty amazing ways. And the first way that God provides is that God provides people to, to return with Him. So, of course, that's kind of important, right? If you're going to lead a return, you need people to return with you. So, so let's read Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. It says, Now these are the heads of their father's households and the genealogical enrollment of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattush. Of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parosh, Zechariah, and with him 150 males who were in the genealogical list. Of the sons of Pehath Moab, Eliahonai, ah, son of Zerahiah, and 200 males with him. You're going to enjoy listening to me try and read this. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and 300 males with him. Of the sons of Adon, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and 50 males with him. And of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and 70 males with him. And of the sons of Shethatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and 80 males with him. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and 218 males with him. Of the sons of Benai, Shalomith, the son of Josephiah, and 160 males with him. Of the sons of Babai, Zechariah, the son of Babai, and 28 males with him. Of the sons of Asgab, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and 110 males with him. And of the sons of Adonikam, the last ones, these being their names, Eliphalet, Jewel, Shemaiah, and 60 males with him. And of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zabud, and 70 males with them. All right, so it's quite a list and, um, you know, a test of your phonics skills, I guess. Um, and, and so these verses, of course, they list the families of those who returned with Ezra. And, and I doubt that there's a lot here that catches your eye. Like this is one of those sections that when you're doing your Bible reading, you just kind of skim through it pretty quickly and don't really pay much attention to it. Um, but, but there are a couple things of significance here. That, that I, and so I want to make three observations about this list uh, relatively quickly. The first is, is that the purpose of this list is to establish national purity. The purpose of this list is to establish national purity. 
You ever wonder why this list is even here? Like, like why, did they, why did they take the time to put this in the Bible? Well, well, the answer is, is that it was very important to the Jews but because they were passionate about reestablishing a pure people of God. Because that is not something that the Jews really had not been very concerned about for centuries, but, but these lists testify to the fact that Ezra was very concerned that the true people of God were the ones that were going back and rebuilding the nation. He was attentive to detail. And so we should be challenged by that, that we should also be careful to, to, to be detailed in our, in our faithfulness to God. And that God doesn't want sloppy, careless obedience. He wants us to honor the Lord down to the point of carefully striving to obey every detail of His will. And so, so this list testifies to the fact that, that Ezra was concerned to honor God and be faithful to God down to the details of who actually went with him. Now, a second observation to make is that most of the families who returned already had family in Judea. Now, this is an interesting one uh, that, that you wouldn't probably catch unless you were really paying attention. So, so first of all, verse 2 mentions three very significant families in, in, in Israel's history. So first of all, it mentions the family of Phineas, and Phineas uh, was the priest Aaron's grandson, and, and he was one of the priests himself, and so the text mentions that several of his ancestors went. It also mentions the family of Ithamar, and Ithamar uh, was actually Aaron's son, another significant priest. And then finally, verse 3 mentions Hattush, who is of the descendants of King David. So, so verse 3 mentions that, that they had people going with them back to Israel who, who were descendants of, of very significant families. Yes, well, why is, what's the point of that? Well, the point is just simply to, to draw a connection, that, that these people were still the people of God, and they were still connected to, to God's blessing and God's faithfulness in the past. And then verses 3 through 14 mention 12 other families. And we really ought to think, don't think in terms of like a family like your family in your house, but think of clans, so to speak. And what's interesting is that all 12 of these families are also mentioned in Ezra chapter 2 as having participated in the first return 80 years earlier. All right? So, so what seems to have happened is, is that when Zerubbabel and Jeshua led the first return, that some of the people in these families and clans had gone back with him, and some of them had stayed back in Babylon. And now, 80 years later, when Ezra leads his return, more people from those families went back. Maybe, maybe for some of them, the entire family went back. And so you can imagine that when they went back, of course, you know, it's not like they, they don't have mail and email and FaceTime and all the the forms of communication that we have today. So some of these families, when they went back, uh, they were reunited for the first time in, in 80 years. So, so most of these families um, had connections in Judea already. And then a third observation is that God provided approximately 5,000 people to return. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you add up all the men who are mentioned in verses 2 through 14, it comes out to 1,000 496. And then verses 15 through 20 add another uh, 278. So that's a total of 1,774. And of course, that's just men. So 
If you add in women and children, you're you're probably talking about a group of of roughly 5,000 people. Now, on the one hand, that's a lot of people, right? I mean, imagine the complexity of leading 5,000 people 900 miles on a journey by foot. That is a complicated trip. But, But on the other hand, I mean, they're trying to reestablish a nation. And 5,000 people, I mean, that's a small town. That's nowhere near a nation. You know, and think about the fact that the Persians, they were marching all over the world with with tens of thousands of people in their armies. Now, 5,000 is nothing in compared to that. It's even small compared to the 42,000 that returned with Zerubbabel some uh, 80 years prior. But, But remember... That, that we saw a few weeks ago that, that, that God had encouraged Zerubbabel in Zechariah 4, verse 10, do not despise the day of small things. Now, so often we, we get so caught up in human glory, human numbers, human statistics, human power, and God doesn't need any of those things to do His will. He is not limited by human greatness or weakness. And in fact, oftentimes, God does His greatest work through small numbers, they think of Gideon's victory with 300 men. Jonathan and his armor bearer defeated the Philistines with just the two of them. So, so yes, 5,000 people is not very many people when you are trying to build a nation. But, but I'm sure that, that God used them to, to inject some juice into the nation and move towards God's purpose. And, and Ezra surely rejoiced that he wasn't going alone, that he had 5,000 people along. So, so God provided people. And then the second thing that God provided in this account is that God provided Levites, all right? So, let's read on. Verse 15 says, Now I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava, where we camped for three days. And when I observed the people and the priests, I did not find any Levites there. So I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, uh, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnathan, teachers. I sent them to Idu, the leading man, at the place, Casiphia, and I told them what to say to Idu and his brothers, the temple servants at the place, Casiphia, that is to bring ministers to us for the house of God. According to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of insight of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah and Jeshiah of the sons of Merari with his brothers and their sons, 20 men, and 220 of the temple servants whom David and the princes had given for the, Levite, for the service of the Levites, all of them designated by name. Now, now, when you read these verses, just imagine there's a scene here. So, so verse 15 says that these 5,000 people, they gather at, at the river Ahava or canal, either one. Uh, and it must have been a river that was somewhere on the outskirts of Babylon. We don't know exactly where it is. But, but they gather there, and, and you can imagine that this is a hectic scene, right? You've got 5,000 people coming together. They've got, it's not just people, there's, there's livestock, they, they've got wagons with all their earthly possessions. I mean, it is a crazy, crazy scene. And, and in the midst of that, you know, Ezra, he's running around. 
You know, he's trying to build this role that we just read earlier in verses 1 through 14, figure out who's over here. You know, you got, okay, so this is your family. You've got this many people, all right. And he's going over here. Who are you? And how many people do you have? And he's trying to take notes. And he's running around trying to figure out who's there because, because you don't want to stay there long, right? I mean, the longer that all these people are sitting around in this one place, you know, nothing good is going to come of that. And you certainly don't want to use up all the food that you have, you have brought together for this long journey. So they're trying to get out of there quickly. And, uh, I mean, you think that, you know, organizing yourself to go on, on a long road trip with your family is hard. I mean, imagine Ezra. You're trying to get 5,000 people organized to go on foot for 900 miles. And I think Ezra would have made a great youth pastor. You know, so, so I was reading this, I was thinking about my days, you know, trying to load up kids to go to camp, you know, and you got, you know, 40 kids, 50 kids, and you're trying to get all their luggage loaded in the trailer, and you're trying to take roll. You know, there's always one really nervous mom that just wants to stand there and have a long conversation about every detail about camp while all this nuttiness is going on around you. And, uh, you know, and so you're trying to be friendly and kind and get things done, and, you know, so it's kind of crazy. And uh, here's Ezra, he's got 5,000 people. I mean, he would have made an awesome youth pastor. And yet, in the midst of all this craziness, he's trying to get everything ready, get them on the road as quickly as possible. Uh, Ezra realizes that they have no Levites among the crowd. Of course, the Levites are, are the tribe that was responsible for, for the temple service and for caring for uh, the temple practices. And, and this is a problem, right? Because, because on the one hand, Ezra wants to get going, right? Like nothing good is going to come from, from this group of people just sitting around doing nothing, uh, but, but as well, I mean, Ezra is going back for the express purpose of doing spiritual reform, right? And the king had given him all these treasures and, and wealth in order to, to, to revive temple worship. And so it's going to be really hard to revive the temple worship if he doesn't have the people to manage the temple. So he needs Levites. So, so therefore, in verse 16, he makes the hard decision to postpone the trip well, he recruits some Levites, and, and so he sends 11 men uh, that are mentioned in verse 16, and he sends them over to this town of Casiphia to recruit Levites. Now, now we don't know uh, where this town, Casiphia, was located, uh, but it probably uh, was somewhere, uh, again, there in the vicinity around Babylon, and it was probably uh, a Jewish community there. And um, and based on how we know that, that, the, that the Jews really thrived financially and so forth during the captivity, we can imagine that it's a pretty comfortable town. I mean, this is not like some shanty town. There's probably nice homes. The people were prosperous. They were doing quite well there in Casiphia. And Ezra sends these 11 men. He gives them the difficult task of convincing some Levites to forever leave behind everything that they know in this town of Casiphia, and to embark instead on a 900-mile journey to a place where they may face foreign hostility, poverty, doing some of the trivial work around the temple, and many other unknowns. So that's a pretty tough sell, isn't it? Like, hey, I want you to pack up your things, go with me to somewhere you've never been, with no guarantee of income, with no guarantee of security, and, and we're going to leave in, in a week's time. That's what these guys have to do. 
And yet, God had given Ezra a divine mission of tremendous redemptive significance. And it mattered. And so he sends these guys over there to make the appeal. And notice that for the third time in Ezra 7 and 8, verse 18 says that the good hand of our God was upon us. And God provides once again. And specifically, a God moves a man named Sherebiah, and as well his sons and brothers, 18 of them. And as well, verse 19 mentions that God moves in Heshabiah and Jeshiah and 20 of their brothers and sons. And then finally, verse 20 adds that God moved in 220 temple servants. The temple servants were not Levites. Sometimes they were mixed, um, mixed race and so forth. Uh, but they were people that, that, that David, uh, this, this group of people that David had, had called to, to help with the temple service. And so God provides. I mean, all these people come together. And, and I want to emphasize here that they had to do this very quickly, all right? Because, because chapter 7, verse 9 says that the caravan assembled on the first day of the month, all right? And, and chapter 8, verse 15 says that on the third day, Ezra realizes they don't have any priests. And then uh, chapter 8, verse 31 says that they pulled out on the 12th day of the first month. So you think about the fact that on the you know, third day, Ezra realizes the problem. You know, fourth day or so, he's like, hey, we need to send some people over to Kasiphia. You know, and, and so basically in a week's time, these Levites have to get all their things together say their forever goodbyes to the people that they know there in Kasiphia, and hit the road with this caravan. That's, that's, that's a tough challenge, isn't it? And yet, God's purpose mattered. And these Levites and these temple servants, they recognized the significance of what God was calling them to do. And, and so they left everything, and they went with Ezra to rebuild Israel's worship. And you know, that's what God's choicest servants have always done. You know, it's amazing whenever we have a missionary in that's going to another part of the world, you know, to think about the sacrifices that missionaries make to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That they're leaving behind their family and their friends and significant relationships. You know, deep connections to go to another part of the world where, where maybe they don't really have many friends, they don't have many relationships but, but they're over there in this, in this back corner of the world because the gospel matters and because people need Christ and because churches need to be established. And, and, and so, now, now God may never call you to that level of sacrifice where God says, pick up your things and go for the sake of the gospel to another part of the world. But I hope that you are ready. Like if God put it on your heart, that you need to go, you would do whatever God said. And if God calls you to make some smaller sacrifice, that you are ready to do whatever He asks. Folks, it is good for us all to remember often that that we're all exiles, right? We are not at home here or anywhere in this world. No, we are here for God's eternal purpose. So don't get too comfortable. Don't get too comfortable here. Be ready to serve Christ however and wherever he leads. So, so God provides. He provided with people, then he provided Levites. And then the third way that God provides 
is that God provided travel mercies. So let's go ahead and read uh, verses 21 through 34. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because he had said to the king, we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. And then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Heshabiah, and with them ten other brothers, and I weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the utensils, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel present there had offered. Thus I weighed out in their hands 650 talents of silver, and silver utensils worth 100 talents and 100 gold talents, and 20 gold bowls worth 1,000 derricks, and two utensils of fine, shiny bronze, precious as gold. And then I said to them, You are holy to the Lord. And the utensils are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of our fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leading priests, the Levites, and the heads of the fathers' households of Israel at Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and Levites accepted the weighed-out silver and gold and the utensils to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. And then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem And the hand of our God was over us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. And on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the utensils were weighed out in the house of our God into the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the priest, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Jozebad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benue. Everything was numbered and weighed, and all the weight was recorded at that time. Now, now folks, this section begins with a very interesting conundrum. All right, so, so Ezra is getting ready to set out on this long journey through the wilderness. Again, it's somewhere eight to 900 miles long. And, and we have to remember that, that he's going to travel through a lot of wilderness. All right, there's not a lot of people in certain of these regions of the desert. And as well, there is no law enforcement. So this really is the wild, wild west, so to speak. And so there's no way that this large caravan of 5,000 people traveling through the desert are going to go unnoticed, especially when you consider the amount of silver and gold that they are taking with them. And we are talking about tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gold and silver. So that's going to attract some attention, right? And, um, and so this is a very dangerous trip. And imagine how devastating it would be if a violent group of raiders says, hey, there's some sitting ducks. Let's go pick them off. Let's, let's get rich. And they attacked. Of course, the, the camp is full of women and children, you know, and they're trying to do God's will. So So the stakes here are very, very high. So an armed escort would have been very helpful, right? A huge comfort. If you've got some Persian soldiers uh, surrounding the the camp and moving with the caravan. But, But verse 22 says 
that Ezra did not feel comfortable asking for a Persian-armed escort. It says in the text, because he had said to the king that the hand of our God is favorably, favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So, so Ezra feels like, I mean, he just told the king, our God is strong and our God protects those who serve him and God judges those who reject him. So after saying that, he feels like, boy, if I, if I turn around and tell the king, well, actually, we need men to protect us, that then he's going to doubt the testimony that I have given about our confidence in the Lord. So instead of asking for an armed escort, Ezra makes the difficult decision to instead ask the Lord to protect them, ask the Lord to, to keep them safe on their journey. Now, now, that does raise a very interesting question, right? Like, would he have been wrong to ask the Persians to, to send an armed guard and, and to ask them to protect them? I think the clear answer is, is no, that would not have been wrong. In fact, uh, when we get to Nehemiah, well, in the book of Nehemiah, it says that, that when Nehemiah leads the third return, that he does have an armed Persian escort when, when he makes his return. And of course, the Bible's clear that, that it's good to be responsible. It's good to use the means that God has given us to protect ourselves and, and to care for ourselves. So, so, so that wouldn't have been a problem. But, but Ezra here makes a, a different choice based on the unique details of his situation, and I think based on what he believes is the direction of God. And the Bible here very clearly holds it up as a positive example, that this was a, a great step of faith on Ezra's part. So, so Ezra here uh, trusted in the Lord to protect him. And so rather than appealing to the king, he appeals to the king of kings, and the people fast, and they pray, so, so they all know what Ezra decided. I mean, think about that. You know, if they get hit by a raiding party, it's not just Ezra's head that's on the table. It's theirs too. So all these people pray. They fast. They seek the Lord to take care of them. And, uh, and verse 23 says that God listened to their entreaty. You know, as I was thinking about Ezra's example here this week, I, I was so challenged because we live very secure lives, right? Now, now, I know that we all have problems, we all have challenges, but the reality is, is that we live very secure lives. And, and much of the time, we have everything under control. And, and as a result, you know, oftentimes, there is very little room in our lives for faith. And we are so used to, to being in control that, that we you know, that, that we don't know how to trust the Lord, and, and when there are opportunities to take a step of faith, we don't even see it, because we've got everything under control. Now, I want to be clear, it's one thing to be responsible. I mean, God is not calling you to, to be a moron and to do crazy things out of faith, but it's something entirely different when, when so often as Christians, we can live as practical atheists. Or that we live in such a way that there really is no room for faith in the Lord to provide. And we've got everything in our own hands. And so I think it's good for us to be challenged, to, to, to cultivate big thoughts of God that drive us to radical obedience and risky ministry. 
Like, I don't know how this is going to work out. I could get burned. But I believe this is what God wants me to do, and so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to step out in faith. And, and, and taking those opportunities, taking those chances is so valuable because, because it, it, it teaches us, it grows our faith, it gives God opportunities to show Himself strong. So I think we all ought to be challenged by Ezra's example here. You know, that he decides, we're going to trust the Lord. We are going to stand for the glory of God, and we're going to do what he believes he wants us to do, and we are going to take this massive step of faith. Well, moving on in the text, Ezra demonstrated great faith, uh, but he also demonstrated wise stewardship. And so, uh, verses 24 through 30 uh, go on to address the fact uh, that, that, as, that excuse me, Artaxerxes had, had entrusted them with, with quite a bit of wealth. And as I mentioned already, I mean, we're talking about uh, tons, literally, of silver and gold. And, and Ezra, he, he takes that stewardship very seriously. And so uh, the verses tell us that, that he establishes uh, accountability for uh, carrying all this money and, and as well safety measures to make sure that, that it all makes it to Babylon. And I don't think, you know, there's any great significance for us in this, you know, that we need to think too hard about verses 24 through 30. You know, other than just to see once again Ezra's character, his diligence, and his careful attention to detail. You know, because Ezra, I mean, folks, Ezra is a great man. I mean, the Jews, the Jews think of Ezra as a second Moses. Now, Moses is a big deal. So, so the fact that Ezra is thought of as a second Moses means that he is a highly respected man who made a massive impact on Israel's history. I think it's good for us to remember that none of that happened accidentally. This man worked hard, he prepared, he was diligent, he was responsible, and God used him as a result. And and we ought to pray, Lord, give me that same zeal to be ready to be used by you. And we need to be people of character and responsibility who, who work hard to do what God has called us to do, people of integrity, honesty, like Ezra. So, so Ezra gets, takes care of the plans with, with all the metal, all the gold. And then, so, so he's planned. I mean, think about all the steps at this point. He, he's, he's planned. He's spent his life preparing for this moment. He's appealed to the king. The king answered. He's organized all these 5,000 people. He's prayed for God's protection. And then verse 31 says, Then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was over us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes on the way. Now, now when I read that, um, considering how, how verse 22 sets us up to wonder about the journey, we, we probably all would like to know a little bit more, right? Like, what happened during that, those four months? So, so did, or, you know, did Ezra organize the caravan with some sort of defensive measures around the people? Um, did anyone actually try to attack them? And if they did attack, what happened? You know, what was the battle like? We all like to hear about a good battle. You know, or, or did God just drive all the raiders away and just let them cruise along without anyone at all bothering them? Well, we'd all like to know all that stuff, but the Bible doesn't tell us. Instead, the narrator just simply highlights what really matters for the fifth time in chapter 7 and 8, that the hand of our God 
was over us. And so he doesn't really care that we understand the details of how it happened. What he wants us to know is that they were safe because God protected them. That's what matters. So God put a wall of protection around the caravan. And he delivered them from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. So God answered their prayers. God answered their prayers. Now just imagine what a faith-building experience it must have been for all these people. You know, they knew, they knew the rest that they were taking. You know, they knew that, that, that there were uh, lots of potential troubles and hazards along the way. And, and yet just imagine them, you know, making the last, you know, traveling the last couple of miles of this journey. You know, they can see Jerusalem up on the hill. They know they're coming into the city of God. And they're thinking about the fact that, wow, we prayed that God would protect us. And God did. We are walking into town with all this silver and gold, and God has been faithful. But of course, the text goes on to say that they were still tired. And so verse 32 says that they, they rested for three days. Now again, they, they just made a 900-mile journey, and, and, and for them to do that in four months, they would have had to average about 10 miles a day. Now you imagine walking 10 miles a day with kids and with cattle and with all your earthly possessions, that is a, an exhausting, exhausting trip. And so the text says that they spent three days uh, recruiting, re- recuperating. And, and as well, I imagine that, you know, again, some of these, well, well, most of these people had relatives who were already back in Jerusalem. So you can imagine getting together with their families and, you know, how's Uncle Bob and, you know, all this other stuff, telling all their history that had taken place in those last 80 years. Had to be an awesome time. And then verses 33 and 34 say that Ezra collected all the silver and gold that he had entrusted to the Levites, and all of it was accounted for. And so the point there is just simply say that the people acted integrity. These Levites didn't steal one dime. And as well, God didn't allow the raiders or the bandits, the thieves, to take one ounce of what the king had given. God protected his people. And most commentators believe uh, that most likely Ezra probably had to send some kind of report, some sort of confirmation back to the king that he had, in fact, delivered all of this wealth uh, to Jerusalem. And, and think about the testimony that would have had, that would have been to the Persians. I mean, you know, the Persians knew that they took off without an armed escort, right? So you can imagine them sitting up in their palace in Babylon, like, thinking, wow, well, there they go. We'll see if they make it. You guys, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to these people. They're kind of crazy. And then to hear back a few months later, God protected them, and they made it. God was faithful. What a testimony of the power and the grace of God. And then the story ends by noting that the people responded in worship. So verses 35 and 36 say, the exiles who had come from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats for a sin offering, all as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then they delivered the king's edict to the, to the king's satraps and to the governors in the provinces beyond the river, and they supported the people and the house of God. So we see there that they offered sacrifices. They offered uh, both burnt offerings and sin offerings. And so the burnt offering uh, would have been Uh, Just a symbol of of reverence for the Lord, a commitment to His will, 
And, and so they're saying, right off the bat, that we are here to serve the Lord because He is worthy. He deserves our praise. And then the sin offering was an expression of repentance and the desire for God's atoning forgiveness. And we're going to see next week, Lord willing, in chapter 9, that they needed that because chapter 9 says that, that many of the people who had previously been in the land, that they had begun intermarrying with the, the Gentiles, the pagans around them. And so they had compromised their, their purity and their commitment to the Lord. And so Ezra has some serious work ahead of him. But, but he starts here by bringing sacrifices to the Lord and approaching him in worship. And let's not forget you know, that, that Ezra was a priest. And he had spent his whole life in captivity. So just think about how awesome it must have been for Ezra after years of preparing for this moment for the very first time in his life to be there before the altar and to offer a sacrifice according to God's law and to worship in God's temple. And that had to be a big deal to Ezra. And he is rejoicing in God, giving thanks for everything God has done. And then finally, verse 26 says, that Ezra delivered uh, the king's decree to all the various governors west of the Euphrates. Now, it is interesting that, that the text does not say he only delivered the, the, the decree to the, the governor of Judea. So it seems as if basically anywhere west of the Euphrates where Jews were living, even down into Egypt, various other parts of the world uh, under the Persian rule, basically Ezra was given authority to bring about reform among Jews living anywhere west of the Euphrates. It's a lot of power. And, and the kings, or excuse me, the, the governors and so forth, they respond positively. And so God just continues to provide in incredible, incredible ways. And, and all of it testifies to the fact that God faithfully and abundantly provides for those who trust in Him. Now, now I imagine... That everyone in this room knows that. God is faithful and God is good. But, but so often, the things that we know in our heads, they don't work their way down to our hearts. And they don't work their ways into our hands and into our feet. And so often, we, we live in such a way that it betrays a, a small view of God and a big view of ourselves. Like, like if we were in Ezra's shoes and we had to choose between asking for an armed escort and trusting the Lord... There is no way on earth we're trusting the Lord. But we don't believe that He is strong and powerful. We think we know better than He does and that we can take better care of ourselves than God can. Now, we would never say it that way, but that's the way that we live. But we need to be reminded today that, that God is faithful. He, he never breaks a promise. And He is abundantly gracious. He is kind and generous and good. And you will never outdo the, the joy, the contentment, the peace that God gives when you trust in Him. So trust in the Lord and walk by faith. And of course, that all begins by, by believing on Christ for salvation. So Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So I think it's important to be clear today that, that all the things that God did for Ezra are, are not just things that God does for anyone and everyone who asks Him for help. 
No, Ephesians 1.3 says that every spiritual blessing comes to us in Christ. So, so if you have not been saved, you know, God is not just your vending machine in the sky. You put a couple quarters in, say a couple prayers, you know, out comes a Snickers bar. No, our blessings come to us in Christ. And if you are not saved, then trust in Him, believe on Him. And if you have questions about how you can have a relationship with Him, we'd, we'd love to talk with you. And if you are saved, run to Christ every day because you believe that He is strong and because you believe that He is faithful and good to those who trust Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the testimony of this chapter. And we thank You that You are a great and an awesome God. And so, Lord, I pray that that Your Holy Spirit would take the truth of this chapter, the truth about Your character, and that Your Spirit would press it deep into our hearts, increase our faith, increase our resolve to obey You. And Father, I pray that we would walk by faith, that we would believe You and trust You and rely on You. And God, I pray that You would do great things among us. Lord, we pray that You would increase our resolve, our commitment, our faithfulness, and use us to glorify Your name. In Jesus' name, amen.